Hello and welcome to Birdcast, the podcast where we explore every iteration of Quatermass along with the other work of Nigel Neal in film, television and radio. In the first of two more lockdown editions, John and I are talking beasts with writer and critic Andrew Screen, whose long-awaited book on Neal's 1970s ITV anthology series is soon forthcoming. Due to the ongoing circumstances of 2020, this episode was recorded via Zoom from three different locations in the UK, each hundreds of miles apart, and the sound quality, at the mercy of Wi-Fi signals and high concurrency, was sometimes a bit less than optimal. We hope this doesn't mar your enjoyment of what was, for us, a really fascinating discussion. This is Beasts, part one. So, first of all, uh, welcome to Birdcast, Andy. So, I ask, um, I ask this of everyone, including Mark Gatiss, so uh, you're in good company. How did you um, first discover Nigel Neal, and was it through the, the gateway drug of Doctor Who? Well, um, I knew you were going to ask me this question, so I had a look, because I, have, I had vague impressionistic memories of the stone tape right. from when I was a child. So I looked it up, uh, courtesy of the BBC Genome website, and apparently it was in 1972 on Christmas Day at half nine that the stone tape was transmitted, and then it wasn't it wasn't repeated until the year afterwards, um, late at night during the school day. So it must have been in 1972 Christmas Day um, with stone tape, and I was five years old. That's very late to be up on Christmas on Christmas Day. Well, I had uh, I had quite liberal parents when it came to watching horror films and various things like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, they were fine with me watching what most things that I wanted to watch at that age. And then I watched uh, Quite a Mess in the Pit the following year on Christmas Day as well, which was on BBC Two. That's the Hammer film, though. The Hammer film, yeah, the Hammer film production. Um, so it was through those two. What are your sure? What are your memories of any of watching the as the stone tape as a five year old? Well, they're they're very impressionistic. They were just sort of visuals and memories, really. So it was it was it was mainly of Jane Asher being chased down the corridor with some lighting effects for them. By a blob, yes. A blob, yes, yeah. And then her running up some stairs. So it was the ending, really, that I I remember more than anything else. So were you going through life having these early memories of, um, of, 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 of Nigel Neal stories, uh, always a fan there from, 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 from then on? Or did you, well, did you come no, back um, it was only later. I, I think it was later on in life than when I was starting being more nostalgic about my television watching. Uh, and, and I was meeting people who of a like mind as well and discussing with them things that sort of scared you. But it, it definitely keyed me in to uh, Nigel Neal, so I would, when I was looking for the Radio Times or TV Times, because we used to get both of those when I was younger, anything with Nigel Neal listed, I would make sure I would tune in. And um, that's, that's how I came across Beasts one, one uh, Friday evening, was by reading TV Times and seeing there was a big article about a new TV show that was, start to, that was about to start from the creator of Cratermass. So this is on first transmission. You'd have been about nine or ten. Um, I would have been nine. That I first. I didn't watch all the episodes. 
for whatever reason, I don't remember why, um, but I definitely watched uh, three of the episodes, June Barty's Party, uh, The Dummy, and Baby. So the easy ones. (laughs) The the, the main ones, actually, I think, yeah. (laughs) Unless I didn't, I don't remember anything from watching the other ones, but they they were definitely the ones that stuck in my memory. What um, particular impressions can you recall from your, from the first viewing? It was, it was, it was definitely sound effects that stuck in my memory more than anything else. That horrendous noise that the, in Beasts, that we'll probably talk about later on, the horrendous sound in Baby, and the bestial noises that Bernard Horsfall made inside mm. the dummy costume. I think they're the main sort of things I remember more than anything else. And, and sort of uh, broken imagery as well, which, which I couldn't quite tie together until later on, of course, when I, I managed to watch them all again. Um, well, they, did, they came out on DVD, I think, about 2006. Um, uh, so yeah. Was, yeah, so it was it was you know, a fair amount of time. I mean, it was fair to say it was one of the more probably more the one of the more forgotten ones, wasn't it? Well, I actually I actually got to watch them a bit earlier than that in the days of sort of tape VHS tape trading. Ah, okay. But yes, they, they came out 2006, and Moraine I'd never seen before. I wasn't overly familiar with Moraine, but it, mm. I'd heard about it quite a lot from from sort of. You know, friends I've, I've got who are into the same sort of type of stuff. Very much a um, can, can be considered a beast's pilot, almost, can't it? Well, it can. Very much I mean, so, yeah. It's definitely established a working relationship uh, between Neil and the producer Nicholas Palmer. And I think I think with Nigel, he Nigel Neil, he needed a trusted producer to get sort of the best work out of him. And I think he found it. I think he was quite lucky to find it with Nicholas Palmer again. So. Uh, Moraine was part of a, an anthology series called Against the Crowd, a seven-part anthology series, which, according to the ATV publicity, was a series focusing on the plight of the individual who, either through circumstances of his own conviction, finds that he is the odd man out, with the majority of his particular group ranged against him. Um, and Moraine was the third episode. But what happened, I think Nicholas Palmer found that he had trouble getting quality scripts that fitted that sort of anthology theme. <laughs> um, so I think Nicholas Palmer found it found it difficult writing writers of sufficient quality that sort of fitted this uh, umbrella theme. So Nicholas Palmer found uh, that he had trouble getting script writers that, that sort of fitted the anthology theme. And uh, I think uh, what happened was, is that, at the time, Nigel, Nigel Neal was looking towards um, producers working for ITV, different franchises, as a way of getting work away from the BBC because he'd become quite disenfranchised with working with the BBC. He'd had a couple of things fall through, such as a mass series right. and uh, a play called Crack. So he, it was, he was courting uh, at producers at the time. Um, and I think... What happened was, um, at one point, he was going to work for the Anglia series, uh, Orson Welles' Great Mysteries. And he'd actually, it, in publicity, it came out that they were going to make a, a, an episode called Special Offer. Uh, but this never happened. But I think he, he later repurposed it for Beasts. Yes. Um, so it was one of seven episodes, I think, as I've said. And there was... It's the it's the only one that really that people remember. Um, 
I remember about two years ago, um, there was, um, and I was very excited that BFI were going to broadcast an episode of Against the Crowd that wasn't Moran. Um, and it was, I think it was part of their um, uh, Black and British season. And there was uh, a, relevant a relevant episode from, from, from that. But I remember saying that it's a largely forgotten series, even if you look to research it, any other episode yeah. other than Moran is, um, is difficult to come across, even with information, let alone let, 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 let alone watch it. Presumably, Moran survives because of the because of the Neil connection. Yes, I think so. I mean, the other episodes were quite interesting. You covered a variety of stuff. You had an episode called Carbon Copy, written by Howard Schumann, which which looked at sort of prejudice and racism. Um, you had another episode uh, written by Roger Marshall called Bread and Circuses, and so there was quite a lot of established writers who worked on it, including uh, Kingsley Amos did one as well. Oh, really? Uh, and Nicholas Palmer himself. Moraine itself was the only supernatural-themed episode out of all of them. Um, the others were more <laughs> look, looking at modern Britain at the time and, and, right. and uh, you know, the sociology of modern Britain at the time. There was one episode, I'm just trying to think of the, trying to look up the, the name of it, um, which was about people having a disabled child. Um, can't find that one at the moment. But that was by written by Faye Weldon. I can't remember the name of it at the moment. Okay. And I think that was the first thing she did for television. So it does have a number of significant people who worked on it. it yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, I've never seen any of the other episodes, so I can't vouch for the quality of it. I can, it's right. only Moraine that I've actually ever, I've ever had the chance to see. So, so I'm right in thinking that Moraine or Moraine was broadcast in the week. I, I've read somewhere that, that, that um, Against the Crowd was actually broadcast in the daytime. Well, it was, um, at first it was, it was actually broadcast on a Sunday night in uh, 1975 in the right. evening. Uh, but it was broadcast two years later in 1977 in February. Um, at 2.25 in the afternoon. Um, so, yeah, that's right. It was in the afternoon at some point. But its initial broadcast was, was an evening? Yeah, on a Sunday, Sunday evening. Interesting. Um, and in your researches, have you uncovered anything about that's uh, of anything particular interest or the, 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 the details of the other episodes, which, as we've, as we've said, are, are largely uh, there's, there's quite a lot. I've managed to uncover sort of reviews and synopses uh, for, for the other episodes of, of um, Against the Crowd. Um, it was generally quite a well-received um, series um, with, with quite a varied sort of output of stories. Is there a sense, though, that uh, the Palmer got uh, Nigel Neal in for the express purpose of giving him something a bit darker, a bit spookier? I think so, because it's the only one out of all of them that, that seems to be have a supernatural theme or, or a macabre theme as such. Um, the others are more to, to do with sociological stuff. So, for example, you've got the one about a couple who have a disabled baby. Um, you have the one about prejudice and racism. You've got one about a man who discovers that uh, the boss at work is embezzling funds. Right. So he decides to, uh, I think, expose this so that the other people in the company are against him. So, so Neil's episode does just sort of stand out quite a lot from, from the others. Right, that's interesting. I think the idea was, I think at the time they said they were going to be doing one that was a comedy, 
one that was proper drama, one that would be a horror story, and, and so on. So Neil was probably asked to come on board to supply that horror episode. And the, atten- the intention from the very beginning was would be that they'd mix it up, basically. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right. And I think that was also, that, that kind of uh, ethos was also carried over into Beasts as well. Mm, yes. Um, where, where they'd have one that was a, an out-and-out horror one, one that was a bit comedic and so forth. Uh, do you know anything in terms of production? I mean, is it the case that if uh, Murren, it's all shot on location? Um, you know, if that was the case for all of them, or is that just... Um, is I, don't, I don't know if all of them were shot on location, but this one was specifically shot all on location in Derbyshire. Now, Nicholas Palmer and John Cooper, I think was the director, mm-hmm. had both worked for ATV on a police... Uh, drama series called Hunter's Walk where they had done a lot of location work with the uh, monoculus as they call it which was their term for the outside broadcast unit all right Um, so it was originally in the script set in Cornwall um, but it was relocated to Derbyshire because it's it's nearer and I think um, the director John Cooper born in Derbyshire in the Peak District and so was quite familiar with the area. So the script went some minor changes because of that. So um, a couple of characters who were named after local places in Cornwall went underwent sort of name changes. So the, the central character Alan Critch, the vet, was originally mm-hmm. called Alan Trigger, which is which is sort of areas in which is named after an area in Cornwall, a town in Cornwall. And um, Beely was the original name for Bernard Lee's character. Uh, Mabley, sorry, was the original name for Bernard Lee's character, but he became renamed Beely. Now, for years, I think people thought that Beely was a pun on on Beely on Bernard Lee. Yes, but there's actually um, an area in Peak District called. It's actually a town, a village in the Peak District called Beely. Right. So I think the idea was he took those names from the local area. Now, whether Neil was responsible for that, I don't know. Or it might have been a decision by John Cooper and Nicholas Palmer. I just don't know. Lost in time. So just having him called Beely is actually a happy, um, a happy coincidence, really. It is, yeah, yeah. So I've actually, I've actually been to the place it's been, it was shot in. Um, I, oh, I'm, really? I'm, not, I'm not going to reveal that just yet. That's going to be in the book, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> but, um, so buy the book, everyone. By the book, when it's eventually out, um, there's um, there's a, the, a lot of people think seem to think it was shot in a village called Wild Boarclough, but it wasn't. Um, I'd like to find someone called Julian Jones alerted me to the fact where it was shot and has been really helpful in documenting the the, the area and the location. Right. And um, what I can say is that um, all the buildings that were featured in in Murren still stand. Um, oh, wow. This is Clemson's cottage. Uh, was actually a repurposed cow shed that the oh, that's amazing. <laughs> the production um, uh, crew actually built a, a false wall and a, a fire hearth and partitioned it. But it, it was actually at the time a working cow shed. Leach's shop is now a family home, and at the time at the time of production, I think it was it was used for slaughtering pigs in, um, <laughs> rather bizarrely. But um, everything's still there, and it's it, it's geographically, as you see it, 
in the television series. So there's there's a one shot where David Simeon, Alan Critch, looks over to Mrs. Clemson's cottage. And if you're stood at a location where where the Leech's shop is, you can look over and you can see directly over to the building that was used as Mrs. Clemson's cottage. So that shot through the through the foliage where you see yes. in the episode that that's accurate. That's that's what that, it, it's all accurate. It's all as it is in um, in 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 the episode, and even down to some of the some of the buildings still have the same paint scheme on them. I think wow. there's, there's one bit where they're, they're walking down um, a slight hill past the building with the big blue shutters up. They're still that's still there, and it's still painted the same colour blue. So I've shown the photographs to John. Right, and will he's um, Andrew's kindly uh, will allow us to um, publish maybe one or two on the on 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 the, on the website. Oh, amazing! You can see, you can, uh, you can see Mrs. Clemson's cottage it is extraordinary. It's like it was. It's like it's unchanged. It's amazing. That's really great. You expect to see Bernard Lee's corpse lying on the. You know, <laughs> the yeah. All the photographs were taken by uh, Julian Jones, so um, I, I must I must give him credit for the for, for taking these photographs. Right. But yes, everything everything's exactly the same. And did it lead That's... fairly? I mean, it was presumably it was there was a fairly easy uh, lead from from Palmer saying, "Would you like to come work for this series?" To that was very good. Should we should we develop this idea into something else? I think it was Nicholas Palmer who who approached the, the bosses at ATV to say, "I you know, would like to like to produce this, take it farther, and produce a, a, an anthology series." Based um, on the strength of Murren, yeah, yeah. So one of the things I've, I've, I've also looked at in the scripts, which I, I think I'd like to highlight for, for each episode if possible, is, is some of the character descriptions that Neil does in the scripts. Right. Each script carries one, which is a gem. So, for example, his description of um, Bernard Lee's character is uh, he is a heavy-faced man whose strength is rapidly running to fat, a process he was admiring his pigs. That's that's. It's an I astounding mean, character description. <laughs> Economical, that, that's, wild, that, that's wild-esque, isn't it? In, in, in there is always an odd sort of poetry in Nigel Neal's writing, which, as it develops, and you can sort of see different eras of his writing and the way in which his dialogue and things develop. It's like he, he, you can see you can see the structure of his sentences, the way his dialogue is written and stuff. It's it, it does have a rhythm to a specific rhythm. And while rewatching Beasts this week, I particularly noticed the way that the dialogue exchanges in Murren and Beasts are very much sort of structured in a kind of quick fire kind of way. You have these sort of, you have a character who's sort of saying a series of short sentences. And every so often you have a brief interjection, short sentence, short sentence, short sentence, interjection, short sentence, short sentence, interjection. Then it switches over and stuff. So you have these exchanges like the confrontation it in the center of um sorry did you just hear my cat go meow in the back yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i'm gonna pause for a moment <laughs> right all right um henry get out um okay well so yeah you have this structure of the dialogue short sentence short sentence short sentence interjection short sentence and then it swaps over and you see that over and over again in Neil's 70s stuff particularly it's I don't think it's quite as evident in, Qu- in Quatermass 
or in the Quatermass stuff, but in, in Beasts and in the Stone Tape and in Murren, you see that kind of structure of dialogue that is really effective for raising tension and for getting across story in an incredibly economical way. His scripts are... His scripts are written in the same way. He's very economical with his character descriptions. Um, and I'll, 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 hopefully I'll share some of the other highlights of character descriptions as we go through some of the episodes. But, but it's a particular thing that struck me as well um, is, is, is economy of prose. Um, yeah. Especially when you read them as well, rather than watch them. They, they're, they're equally entertaining and engrossing. And it's, it's been quite interesting to see the different layers of authorship that you get going on when something's translated from the page to screen. I mean, obviously, Murren is a bit of a touchstone for me. Yeah, um, right. for, for my work and everything. And yeah. I, I think it illustrates the central, tr- central tension of folk horror. But um, I think, yeah, it's just, it's just a really, really interesting piece of work. Do, do you know what Nigel Neal had in mind when he was writing it? What was going on? And where, where his influence was there? Why did he pick that as a subject? I, d- I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, he did do um, that, the Hammer film, The Witches, yes. uh, ten, 10 years previously, which is an adaptation of an existing novel. But, but the, the Witches was bright and colourful. picture well, Hammer. It's a hammer well, yes, movie. it is. It's not a very good hammer movie, I think. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's quite dull, and and Murren is is the antithesis of it. It's down and it's dirty, it's shabby, and 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 all the prejudice is there on the surface, whilst in the witches it's bubbling away underneath this picturesque layer. Yeah, um, I can only compare those two. I don't know where where uh, Neil got this idea from. Um, I've got more of an idea with some of the episodes of Beasts because they're better documented. Um, right. I've been, I've been able to get hold of a production file for Beasts. I've not been able to get hold of anything for, for Murren. Um, right. I'm not sure right. if it exists anymore for, for right. Against the Crowd and Murren. I understand um, two of the episodes of Against the Crowd are missing, but five survived. Right. Um, but I, I, that isn't corroborated. That's just what I read somewhere. Right. Um, and again, I said, as I think I mentioned earlier, the BFI have shown one of them, and obviously Brian's available commercially, uh, solely from, from financial mill reasons. But yeah, it seems a very, a very, a very forgotten series. But a quick yeah. word, a quick word on um, on David Simeon's performance, because oh yeah, if you if, if you're someone who enjoys vintage television, you you'll recognise him from his he appears in the first two episodes of the Doctor Story of Demons. He has a small part, I think, in um, Ambassadors of Death. He's in the first scene of the first episode of Forty Towers as a man who's running late because he didn't get an alarm call. Um, so you don't necessarily think of him as a, as a leading man, but he carries this this episode very, very well. Well, I, I actually, I've actually interviewed David about this uh, and about his appearance in, in, in Murren. And, and, and I tried to compliment him on his performance in Murren. He wouldn't have it. Oh, really? Um, he was... And I asked him why why didn't he do more straightforward drama? I mean, he did before this. He'd actually worked with Nicholas Palmer, the producer, uh, in Hunter's Walk again, the police series. He's one of the regular characters in that. But he's he's 
he's more as as John said, he's more known really for short, small roles and comedy roles. I think I think at the end of the day, he's just he was more comfortable and liked comedy more than straightforward drama, which is unfortunate really because he's he's a fantastic foil, not just for Bernard Lee but for Unan Brandon Jones as well, uh, who plays Mrs. Clemson, yes. who's absolutely astounding in that scene between David Simeon and Una Brandon Jones when he's delivering her the food and he's looking for the mammoths or he's looking for something around the cottage and then he finds that doll and Una Brandon Jones starts to speak about her past and the, the frustration and the disappointment of her past um, and she starts squeezing the doll, breaking the doll. It, it's, a, it's a fantastic scene um, and I, I, asked, I asked David about it and he, he said he was in awe of Una Brandon Jones, she she was she'd been around since she year dot, and she'd been in, involved with um, socialist legendary socialist theatre group, the Unity Theatre. Amazing. Um, uh, and he said he was just now in that scene. It it, it moved him as well because he goes from he goes from he goes from a scene of suspense to raw human emotion, and she's just fantastic in it. And he said he was in awe of her steel and power. In that, in that bit of the performance, to me, that's one of the sort of standout sort of scenes in the room. Uh, um, so, you know, yeah, yeah, he did so well. Yeah, he did so well against these two major, respected, famous actors. Yes. So let's talk about the witch. The poor old biddy have got lined up for the part. What's her name? Oh, if it's safe to say it out loud. Mrs. Clemson. You don't know her? I don't have to. That's one of the benefits of a college education. But I can tell you about her just the same. For a start, she is old, right? Right. And ugly. Wrinkles and wens you get when you're old. Even a wart or two. All helps, doesn't it? Makes her nasty to look at. A bit odd, too. Talks to herself, shouts at people, nobody goes near. That's her. On her own over there, is she? Nothing but a... a cat? Or a bird? A cat. So she talks to that? Send him out, she would. You'd always see him about, watching. Cats do that? Not him. Not no more. Got seen off. Pitchfork. You killed her cat? All this talk. You're trying to prove there's no such thing. Well, you won't prove it to us. We know there is. Sick. They've got you trained to thinking nothing's true if it's not in books or you can't shove it in a bottle and analyse it. That's called... Work knowledge. out the rules. If what the rules don't fit, don't happen. The purpose of science... Tell you, fans, you got the rules wrong. Then we change the rules. Oh! Well, that's handy. For better rules. But we don't go back. I used to, um, well, I say used to, I, I still do, uh, almost as a fault, we'll go through um, watching watching episode, trying to identify actors and what else they've been in. So in, as well as uh, David Simeon's easy enough, David Neal, who's one of the villagers, is uh, the president of Androzani Major, uh, in, in the case, yeah. in Dr. Sir, the case of Androzani. Um, but I didn't, uh, I, the only way I recognised Una Brandon-Jones is because, well, um, when she opens the door, first of all, to David Simeon, Oh, it's the, oh, it's the farmer's wife from Whitnell and I. Yeah, <laughs> she yeah, the door in exactly yeah. the same way to Paul McGann. 
Yeah, it's almost exactly the same yeah. way. Um, it's almost as if Bruce Robinson is a has watched the episode and gone <laughs> right. Do 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 do, do that, that. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I like the fact that maybe that maybe Mrs. Clemson moved to uh, moved to the Lake, the Lake District and um, and remarried and remarried <laughs> and, and was ha- and, and, and was was happy. But those still, those still grumpy in her in her in her life in her new life as a farmer's wife. Um, but it was during, if, if it wasn't for that scene, I probably wouldn't have recognised her. In that, in, in, in that bit as well. When she opened it, it was like, um, so when you when you recognise as a reference for something, or you definitely don't come back to it. I think uh, the, the League of Gentlemen uh, does it in um, did Tubbs do well? You did it beautifully at Tubbs, and it was. Mm. I saw that for the first time in ages. Sorry, I saw The Wicker Man for the first time in a long while after, and they hadn't realised at the time that it. You was, did it beautifully. You did it beautifully. It was a direct reference to The, to the Wicker Man because I hadn't seen The Wicker Man for years before before watching. Um, League of Gentlemen for the first time, and there's one of the little touchstones there, which made me think: Did Bruce Robinson, uh, when casting, going do it like that bit in Murren, which <laughs> ten, 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 ten years later was, was uh, um, so. We have um, a well-performed, well-scripted, a presumably well-received um, episode from from Nigel Neal and. and Nicholas Palmer says to to ATV that we're 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 on to a good thing. Was it just a case of he, in, as often was the way in 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 seventies telly, there was a huge level of power within the producer, and if the producer went, trust me on this, I want to do a I want to do a six a six part series because it's called Beasts by Nigel Neal. It's he's up there as a as the as one of the as mm. the main the main reason for doing it. And presumably that was one of the easier um, developments that's happened in, in Neil's career. Well, I think I think we forget how famous Neil was as a scriptwriter. He 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 was because of Quatermass. He had this caliber. He had this reputation, and so he was quite pri- he was probably quite a catch for ATV. Um, and and Nicholas Palmer was a well-established producer of plays and and script editor on plays. So he was quite established in ATV as well, and. The first episode to be filmed during Barty's party was, was actually filmed quite a while before the, the rest of the episodes of Beast. It was almost, I think it was filmed as a pilot episode. Right. To be honest. Right. Um, so you're looking at a good, uh, a good half a year before the rest of Beast goes into production. And, and, and that makes sense because it is, is, is evidently cheaper than pretty much any of the others is just one set it's a bottle episode there's only two people on screen there's it all the action happened there are no special effects everything is just sound design and yes. people losing their minds inside a house um it, it makes sense that they would almost as a proof of concept make it make something that was really really sort of easy to make and no budget yeah yeah i think well you, you're talking the mid-70s as well so there was definitely you know, um, an, an onus on saving budgets as well, because I think at the same time ATV were producing a series called Cottage to Let, um, which was basically a series of plays over the decades based in the same facility, the same house. <laughs> and again, that was a money-saving exercise on their behalf, but it still fitted underneath an umbrella title as an anthology series as well. So yeah, I think you, I think you're right, Howard. I think it was for a frugal frugal way of, of, of making making some effective television. Yes. Uh, so I think Neil himself 
he said in interviews he, he wanted to do a version of the birds right uh, with rats but i think what he'd realized and what he very cleverly realized is that um, probably having worked with rats in the, in the production of 1984 way back in the 50s and realizing how <laughs> terrible they are as actors he probably realized that less is more as well yes yes you so, don't actually uh, need rats Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, the sound design that, that runs through uh, June Barty's party is, is actually there in the camera script. It's laid out. Each rat cue has got a different cue um, oh, in wow. the camera script. And Neil is on record of saying he's full of um, admiration for the guy who did the sound design. Um, and I think these day and age, if, if that was made and transmitted, it could possibly should or could have been awarded a um, given an award for for for, for the sound um, design. It, yes, it's, it's fantastic. It acts it acts as the music in the episode. Yes, because the only music in the episode is diegetic. Um, yes, yeah. the, the seven-inch single, the radio show. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think that's true of all episodes other than um, Buddy Boy. I Buddy Boy. Buddy Boy had the score composed for it, yes. Yeah, that's, uh, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's, 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 that's the end one. I mean, in terms of uh, sound, I think there's, there's, two, there's two things that stand out. The probably the most famous scene when the neighbours arrive and they're saved. And they're saved only in that slightly nebulous way that you're saved when your parent comes in and turns the light on when you're having a nightmare. Uh, it doesn't, there's somebody else as well, there's civilization. It doesn't, you're still in the same situation, but there's someone, it's going to be all right. You're not, you're not alone. And then, and then, and then it doesn't matter because, the, because even though your parents come in and turn the light on, the monster has just come out of the closet and killed your parent in front of you. <laughs> it's, it's saying you were scared before. Here's a solution. No, I'm destroying it now in front of you. And obviously it's just done with sound. Obviously there's actors to do with, uh, of, of, of camera, but well, it's all sold on sellers and, um, the, uh, yeah, the, the, thing, the thing about, the thing about the, um, the, the voice actors, the sound actors in June Barty's party is that they're all, mostly really well-established character actors or voice artists. So a lot of people go on about it being a two-hander just between um, Anthony Bates and Elizabeth Sellers, but they, they've actually got a supporting cast there mm. do not appear, but, but they make an impression. Um, oh, yeah, it's John, John Rhys-Davis is one of them, isn't he? Yeah, I was going to say, you've got an actual, actual Brexit Gimli there. <laughs> Oh, you've seen that episode of Question Time as well. Yes. <laughs> um, it, it patronises the, the rat. It doesn't go so well. Oh, for heaven's sake. The, the character of uh, Roger, played by uh, John Reese davis is given one of those fantastic character descriptions by Nigel Neal as well. Oh, really? Um, so, yeah, Peter Newell, the character, played by John Reese davis is, is, is a business associate that Anthony Bates talks to on the end of the phone. Mm. With this, this big booming voice, which is quite clearly John Reese davis and he's given this fantastic character description. It's, one, it's my favourite ever in all the um, scripts for Beasts that Nigel Neal did. He says, um, a voice rings on the receiver, vibrant and penetrating, a voice accustomed to dominating bars. And that's all you need to know for that character. A, vo a voice accustomed to dominating bars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I 
to remember that and pass that off as my own when I'm just when I'm describing someone I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't like. Thank you, Nigel. <laughs> um, director um, is Don Taylor for this, isn't it? It is. Yes. yes. Who has, of course, he has form for claustrophobic drama. He did The Exorcism, didn't he? For for Dead of Night. He did. He Which did. is another yeah. one of my favourites. It's a fantastic episode. Um, he wrote. He wrote that as well, didn't he? He did. Yeah. He did. Yeah. Um, this is his first episode. He does. He does actually direct two episodes. He does Buddy Boy as well, doesn't he? He does Buddy Boy yeah. as well. And I think I think he brought his discipline that he learned from theatre to yeah. oh, very uh, nice. Drew Barty's party yeah. and, and cast it so exquisitely uh, with Anthony Bates and Elizabeth Sellers. Uh, however, contrary to popular belief, there were quite a few production stops whilst they stopped the tape. Interesting. It doesn't, it was not recorded solidly from A to B. There were several stops from now. Uh, some of them were uh, cutaways, um, such as a view of the garage roof or the uh, kitchen door being gnawed away. Uh, some of them were to reposition cameras and to reposition scenery as well. So there were several stops throughout it, but it's done so seamlessly. Uh, and it was done in shot in one night, in one evening, that uh, right. you know, akin to the old um, studio production, uh, production process we're familiar with with Doctor Who. Right. Uh, so you've got to go home at 10 o'clock. Stay in the camera. Yeah, half yeah. 10, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lights out at half 10, half nine. So it's done in much the same way. Um, and it was rehearsed for a full week beforehand as well. And then right. they did a full day of camera and dress rehearsal uh, before they recorded it. So uh, it's, it's so well rehearsed. It is a theatre play. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that strikes me about Jesus Party Party and one of the things why it's so enduring is that it could be a play in any medium. It could be a play for the radio. It could be a theatre play. It could be a feature film. Or it could be a television play. It works on all those levels in all those different media. Um, it sort of transcends just being a, an ordinary play from 1976. Yes. And the second bit of um, that, I, that I didn't mention earlier, other than the, uh, the, the most famous scene that I find personally the most chilling, is, is the very end where it just has the shot of the radio and the sounds, and it, the sound of the rats gets increasing, and then the radio starts shaking because the table's shaking, and you realise that there are countless rats pouring into the room just off camera, mm. and that's you don't need to see it. Whatever you would see won't be as won't be as horrific as the image in your mind that their rat mm. room, that their home is being overrun by thousands well, and thousands. That, that's the same. That's that's the same. That's the same for for the scene we were talking about earlier with the. Uh, the Gibson family, the next door neighbours arrive mm. and they go and you've just got the sound effects. Mm. But it's the expressions on Anthony Bates and Elizabeth Sellers' face that, that sell the horror and realisation that this is going to happen to them as well. Um, it, it's such a powerful sequence for me that. But, but yes, that, that, that radio, the close up with just the radio show. Yeah, like playing out, playing out the adverts. Yeah, and as it, as it gets drowned out, drowned out by the sound. And in the middle of that um, very interesting uh, power dynamic that we go from, uh, that Neil will, will, will revisit several times, uh, not least of which are in Baby, in a slightly, um, a slightly abusive, slightly patronizing relationship. Uh, that the, the, the male character has for his for his wife, 
Um, but here, um, he loses control totally because he's just someone that's always sees himself in control and just about that. And when there's a situation he can't, there's something out of his remit whatsoever, which is a, a recurring theme I see, I see through Beasts, where you have um, a fantastical event highlights the inherent issues, sorry, the issues inherent in, in um, well, they're often very unhealthy relationships. Well, m most, of the, most of the men in Beasts are absolute idiots. They're well, Beasts, basically. Cool. They're beasts, exactly. Yeah. And it, it's the women that, that are the strong characters. They're the ones that are aware of what is happening, whilst the, the men are just utter buffoons. So it's an interesting one. I mean, even, even in Buddy Boy, all the mm. men are, are hor horrible and self-obsessed and disgusting men, disgusting characters. Yeah, I mean, the, Martin so Shaw is the least character. horrible male in the, in the programme, but he's still horrendous. Uh, Lucy, Lucy gives him what's her name? Um, Pamela Moiswich. Moiswich. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, she gives him every opportunity. It's even just before her. I don't know we're, we're jumping around a bit here, but even before her final scene where she she drowns in the bath, there's a post-coital scene where she sort of reaches for affection. She gives him every opportunity, and in effect, he's pretty much raped her. Uh, but just because she's back, and she's still she's trying to give him every opportunity not to be a complete arsehole up until the end, and it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. He still is. Well, Pamela Mastovich is actually in Buddy Boy as well. She's one That's of the voices on the radio. She's uh, yes, party. yes, uh, you're she's right. actually in sort of June Boy's party as well. Yes, she's right. Okay. The, yeah. uh, the the AA woman. On the oh, radio. okay, all right. And, and another person who's uh, might worth pointing out in, in June Bath Party is uh, David Simeon's wife. He's actually one of the voices as well. Oh. She's actually uh, the voice, uh, Elizabeth Council, mm -hmm. married to David at the time, and still oh, okay. is, from what I understand, uh, is, is Mrs. Gibson. Oh, okay. Uh, and there's lots of other great uh, Norman Mitchell, who was forever playing poli comedy policeman or policeman. Is the actual police sergeant that uh, yeah, uh, okay. up. there's that um, really there's that really really human um, fear of uh, the of yeah impotent rage when you realise that there's like they've got your name wrong and you can't do <laughs> it. Yeah. And uh, and that's the point at which the the phone lines but, cut. Yeah, deliberately by a fucking yeah. rat. Um, yeah. And it's yeah, and they're we're trying to find you. And it's somewhere. In, what we know is it's somewhere in Surrey. And I've, I've, now I don't know your name. Uh, it's just like. And then they start to oh, is this even a hoax? Um, like, and it's it's too late. And like you're out, you've lost the situation totally. And the utter horror that there's that there's nothing you can do. And not only is there nothing coming, that what it what they have done is is wrong. It's, and you can't. You know, they're like screaming at the radio, and you, you've all we've all been there and utter pointless, poor, impotent pouring of rage or emotion at something that you know can't do, but what else, what, what else can you do? That's, that's also genuinely, genuinely frightening. It, 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 what's interesting as well is that in those, in those final moments is, is Angie, is Elizabeth Sellers, is the only, is still being practical. Mm. You know, she's getting him to don the, the fencing masks, masks. Yeah. masks yeah. the heavy coat, and Anthony Bates, Roger Truscott is a complete jelly. There's nothing left of him. Yeah. He's gone. Yeah. And but she, she's the one that realizes the fate from the start, and she's the one that will see it through to the end. It, it's 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 a fantastic piece of writing, and as you say, the switch between the two 
over the period of the time is, is, is brilliant. There's, there's momentum in that relationship all the way through it. it it's really well written. So that was the first, and you say that was six months before the next one was, was put into production. Yeah, so that, that, was, that was shot as a pilot almost. And then, so the next episode into production was Buddy Boy, which is the least appreciated, I think, of all the episodes of Beasts. It's, yes, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's probably different. the toughest. It's, it's, it's tough. The, the, it's, almost, it's, it's a bit nebulous. Curiously, the only one with a, with a soundtrack. Yeah. Like, like with Barty's Party, we start with a, a film sequence. This, to me, I assume, is stock footage of, 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 of dolphins at play in their natural environment before we come across the seediest of, the seediest of sets of the, 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 of the disused pool, pool area. Um, and they waste no time, I think, in that, first of all, in just like showing three fairly horrible people. And Wolf Morris does a good job at being seen as someone who's very, who's, who's very unpleasant. Making his second appearance in, um, actually third, I think, in uh, um, Nigel Neal. So he's in The Bottom of Snowman, isn't he? And doing the, and the Creature. Actually, The Creature, I suppose you could argue, has a similar theme yes, to yes, yes. Who, who is the creature. Is it, is it, you know, is it, it's, the Bottom of Snowman had, doesn't have the ambiguity. The Bottom of Snowman, it's about a yeti. Whereas Nigel Neal's The Creature, who is the real creature? Is it, is it, is it, is it Stanley Baker? Is it, um, is it, or is, is it the creature in the way that who is well, who, who is the beast here? Yeah, it managed beast, and I think that 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 runs through most of the episodes of beasts as well. Man is the ultimate beast. Yeah, um, the beast. It's, it's it, yeah. more or less obvious in some of them. Um, yeah, but, we're uh, curious. We don't have many ghost dolphins. In, in, um, well, uh, well, the, there are legends of a ghost dolphin in the Not Peacock Theatre. Okay. In the West End of London. Yes, yes. Um, a ghost dolphin. <laughs> a ghost dolphin, yes. Um, and I, I've looked at this, I've researched this, and I think what Neil's done is he's taken a few things and he's combined them all together to call the body body. So the Peacock Theatre hosted a Paul Raymond review show in the early 70s and actually had a tank built that housed a couple of dolphins that would swim up and disrobe women. Swim up and disrobe women. Sorry, yes. I thought you just yeah. said that they would disrobe women. They did, yeah, yeah. They swim up and unbutton their bikinis or swimming costumes. <laughs> and this was Bloody part hell. of um, uh, Paul Amazing scenes review show. And so they had a tank purposely built for this in the Peacock Theatre, which would rise above the stage, rise out of the stage. Um, it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't successful. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it didn't run for long. <laughs> um, but, but what happened was is that the, the tank is apparently still there under the stage of the Peacock Theatre. And the legend is is that uh, during the run of the show, the, t- the dolphins were not very well looked after and they died. And so therefore, there's apparently people have heard strange sounds almost akin to a baby crying or a dolphin's cry in the peacock theater uh, so i think neil was, was quite aware of this and also um in the 1970s mid-1970s um on oxford street in, in london it was actually the london dolphinarium which again wasn't open for very long but um apparently they had a dolphin there called sunny boy who died oh. Uh, which led to the closure of the Dolphinarium. 
because it wasn't keep looking after the dolphins very well. So I think Neil's taken these and um, weaved them together to to to, to make Sunny Boy. Uh, Buddy Boy. Buddy Boy. <laughs> I really liked in watching it this time around, seeing some of the, the various ephemera that's left behind in the set, the posters and mm. things they're very they're very nelian actually they're, they're nigel neil nigel neil doing light entertainment on tv place yeah he does it in a certain way and so these he, posters which talk about your funny finny friends and things like that they're that, all that, there in the script as well yeah, yeah. All precisely I don't doubt it. laid out and, and asked you know but, but, you know, it reminded me of the ghastly um, dance review in um, in Quatermass for and <laughs> bum titty titty show. Yeah, it? yeah, that's <laughs> right. Um, that sort of thing. That sort of he's, he's he's clearly got he's clearly got a dim view of life yeah. entertainment. Yeah, for the peacock's custard pie fight in the other sex Olympics. Yeah, it's always okay, a the one. custard pie, a pie fight. fight yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the same same thing. Um, I'm not sure if he's a bit of a prude in some ways, though. Disapproving of 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 um, the, the sexually liberated seventies. Well, he disapproves of a lot of things, and and clearly, 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 the the Dolphin Show, the posters position it as family entertainment, mm. and that's in contrast to what that building is about to be used for. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you get to see also how he would how he would portray a a, a porn theatre, a porn, a porn yes. cinema. Yes, yeah, you get yeah. that. You, you would get. It's, it's, well, go on, sir. The character of Martin Shaw, Dave, in some ways reminds me of Paul Raymond as well, because he's 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 there in the mid seventies during the liberalisation of sexual attitudes, and he's he's wanting to be respectable by expanding his his adult empire which is very similar to what Paul Raymond was trying to do at the time, which brings us back again to that, the haunted dolphin at the Peacock Theatre. So I think, I think the character of Dave, he, he can only see things transactionally. Everything is a transaction to him. You know, I thought you got yourself in stuck with heavy mob. You didn't though, did you? No, well, that's okay then. I'll tell you what though, I'm going to need a base. I could use this place, it'll do. Bastard. I'd look after it. You'd get rent. All right. Fix it with the lawyer. Go on. <laughs> you said they never turn vicious. It's funny that. It's where they're different from us, eh? And they stay that way, no matter what. I mean, no matter what happens to them. Is that so? Well, I reckon it depends. And that's his downfall. He's, he's, he's actually, he's actually, um, there's a lot of M.R. James in Buddy Boy, I think. Having watched yes. Yes. There's a bit where they find the plastic ring in the, the drain outlet in the in the pool and then from then on martin shaw's character hears the dolphin he's doomed from that moment on i wondered if there was a parallel to be drawn with um Hub hubbard is clearly broken by whatever has well 
whatever's happened and he's he is affected by 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 muddy boy's death and we don't know how muddy boy died but the the assumption is that hubbard did something and the way he talks about muddy boy that you know he was getting above himself he was organizing the others which he's you know He's giving him yeah. these, these these levels of levels of levels of control and influence that you wouldn't necessarily 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 think of for a non-human um, character, um, but clearly he's had something to do with his death and he has paid a terrible terrible price for that and knows and you you're, you're never really expecting um, Wolf Morris to, to to make it to the end of this episode, um, but the, but is there a way that you can see that Martin Shaw is like? Dave is a is like Hubbard at an earlier stage of his career. Well, um, there's, a, there's there's that key bit of dialogue actually between um, Lucy and Dave when when she's gone back to the, the theatre and she's been given some. Oh uh, yes, you're like him. Uh, where she right, actually yeah. does say to him at one point, "You're like him. You're going to become like him." And that's a key bit of dialogue, I think. So, what does uh, Nigel Mills? As we're soon learning now, infamous um, character portrays in his script say about any of the particular people in Buddy Boy. Okay, well, there's Jimmy, who's uh, Dave's sidekick, played by Scottish guy, Williams. the guy yeah. from It Ain't Our Mum, and Play School. Oh yeah, Play School. At the same time, he was appearing in Buddy Boy as a pornographer. The, the character description of Jimmy is um, he aims to be a successful yes man, and he's doing very well in this. A, man, a non-smoker, he carries a light in his pack in his pocket to light other cigarettes. A wiry glib Scot, he has a mentality of a ponce. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. It's, it's amazing, it's, isn't it? it? <laughs> There's the mentality of a ponce. A wiry glib Scot with the mentality of a ponce. It's a, they are oh fantastic. My, these are fantastic. Oh my word. <laughs> so um, yeah. we, 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 <laughs> that that put me off my question. <laughs> so we've got we've got the obvious parallels with uh, with with Dave and with um, and with Hubbard, but um, the only truly seemingly good innocent person in this is 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 is, is, is Lucy. Well, um, yeah, she's she's such an odd character, though, hmm. isn't she? She's so, I think one of the main problems with Buddy Boy is that you can't identify with any of the characters are either very damaged or complete arseholes. And, and, and Lucy's the same. It's almost as if she's got... Lucy's like a flip female character to the others, where she, she probably has quite a disturbed background. She might have what we call now attachment disorder. Yes. Which, which is... Um, a problem forming relation, close relationships because you had a problem of not having a relationship with a caregiver or a parent when you were younger. Yes. So she strikes me as 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 a woman who's, who's looking for that sort of love, unconditional love, and that's what she's looking for in Buddy Boy. And then towards the end, that's what she's hoping for with Dave. But but then you get that that scene, that lovemaking oh, scene. Oh, <laughs> With Martin Shaw gurning away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's making, and, and and she's there with the face looking to the side, going, "Oh, fuck's sake." <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. She has that bit after where she she tries for affection. She's she's mm. giving, she's she's mm. doing everything. She's throwing anything at him to, to possibly bring any sort of humanity out of him. And he's like, and, "If you thought about doing porn, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah." yeah. 
again, he's looking at it transactionally. Again, mm. it's the only way people can look at this stuff. These are all relationships. Um, these are all relationships are to him. It's 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 really extraordinary. Um, and so and so yeah, uh, it, that's the ending of Buddy Boy, where where she 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 committed suicide. Now you can either view that that she's been possessed by the dolphin to do this act. Yeah, it's unclear. I, I was unclear how this. Yeah. Yeah. Or. She's getting her own back at Martin Shaw's character, Dave. Uh, or it was always going to be. She's always. You take one look at that ca that character, and you think, "Oh no, she's dangerous. Something's going to happen." It's it's a difficult ending, and it's a difficult ending to process because it doesn't give you an answer. And I think that's why people struggle with Buddy Boy is because there's no character to latch onto, and because there's there's no resolution. Everything's very nebulous. About yeah, it's like, is there a dolphin ghost or is there not? What's However, he, the man scared of? Yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting is if you look at the original script, um, there's, with Buddy Boy, there's been a lot of fingers in the pie with it. There's been, there's been some problems with, with the script, I think. Because in the original script, all these manifestations that hovered exper experiences of the ghostly dolphin are not in the original script but right. they appear in the camera script. It's, it's almost like someone said, mm, Nigel, we, we, we need to make this more obvious. We need to, we need to show this in some way. Um, so yeah. so yeah. you can imagine this, the story without those uh, uh, ghostly dolphin manifestations, it would be even more difficult to access. Um, and there's lots, of, there's lot, lots of little things going on with uh, the sequences, which which only appear in the camera directions. Um, so Don Taylor's added bits to make it flow a bit better. There's, um, there's there's quite a bit of improvisation or additional dialogue or alterization of dialogue going on as well. There's there's, there's a lot of layers of authorship to Buddy Boy. So I don't was know there, if that caused a problem as well. Was there the this, sorry? Was it suggested the implication was that it would only be Martin Shaw who could hear Buddy Boy? Well, the original you've, you've, Hubbard's character can hear Buddy Boy. He can, I know in the transmitted version he can, yeah, but it was yeah. the, you were saying in the, in, the camp, in the original script, was that you think there was Neil's intention that only Dave can hear, can hear Buddy Boy? In the original script, uh, it, the only time you get to hear Buddy Boy is, is, is at the end of episode one where Lucy is, is standing on the platform and she, she calls out his name and both of them hear it crystal clear. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Um, that, that seems to be the only time it's written into the original script. All, all the other manifestations to do with uh, Hubbard, Wolf Morris's character, seem to have been added on later at some point and appear in the camera script. It, it's, it's interesting. There's, there's, there's been some problems with this one evidently somewhere along the line. Right. Um, Do we know if Neil was less happy with that than he might have been with some of the others? I've never found... Right, the interesting thing about it is I've never found any, any quotes or mention of it in any interviews, but he's been happy to mention something about all the other episodes of Buddy Boy. But he, does, he's never really, he never really discussed it. Hmm. There might be some material in um, Andy Murray's book, but I've, I've not checked that yet. <laughs> I'm trying not to rely too much on Andy's book. I'm trying to 
Okay, I'll, I'll find material that's you know. Um, I'll, I'll ask Andy, and, and then and then when we do the next episode, I'll subtly weave it in as a as a vignette of talking about something that sounds like I knew what I was talking about all, all along, and then re-edit okay. it into, 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 into this bit. Okay, I won't do that. So, what was next on the on, on the on, on the order? Right. Well, next, uh, I mean, we're looking at these in um, a suggested transmission order mm. from Nicholas Palmer, who was the producer. Because, of course, this being an ITV franchise, there were regional variations on transmission, was, not only yeah. dates and order, which is often the uh, the grave markers of many uh, an ITV series. Well, some, I mean, it was meant to be a Saturday night series, but I think a lot of them got transmitted Friday night in, in other areas or got transmitted in a different transmission order. Uh, the next one is Special Offer. Ah, the British carry. Okay, yeah. Ca- <laughs> yeah. The latest term of carry in a supermarket. Yes. But very much Brian De Palma's carry rather than Stephen King's, I think. That's right, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, so um, Neil described this as a comedy episode. Um, okay. Okay. Now, um, I'm not sure where the comedy comes from from this episode because it's quite a disturbing episode. Mm. Um, I mean, you might find some comedy in um, the evidently damaged central character of Pauline Quirk really badly applying makeup, but um, I, I don't think there's much comedy in it really. Yeah, I mean, there's. You can suppose you could, on a one dimension, you can sort of laugh with her. There's the bit where the where the, the boss says, uh, "How do you like your coffee?" and she awkwardly says, oh, "I do like it." And it's like. Um, there may be some base sort of okay. social okay. stuff there as well, but it's, it's no, it's, it's nasty and it's chilling. And um, yeah. as we develop the character of uh, Billy, um, the things, as it starts to, you know, she's, she's this um, beacon of innocence around, around, around other people. But, but as, you know, it's, as she starts to develop with Billy, she becomes slightly nastier. There's the bit where she throw the guy's cleaning up the, the warehouse, and he's the only character that's really shown her any kindness. And she like throws an apple core and like get, gets him gets him to clear it up. And there's something about her awakening through the power that she now knows she possesses by you know, being able to telekinetically um, well move objects around. Um, yeah. And there's, I, I always found that, you know, there's something, it, it's, there's no resolution. Uh, but as, as she learns more about the power she has, she becomes less innocent and potentially a, a less pleasant person. I think it says something for the viewer that you, I, or you know, I don't want to speak for, speak, speak for many people, but how you, um, what you project onto, 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 onto Noreen. Um, and do you think of her as a better person than she might be because she's innocent or because she's naive? Um, I'm not sure she's a particularly good person. Well, well, again, I know, I know we call it, we've called it carrying the supermarket, but I think, I think, again, it's Neil tapping into things that he's already interested in before Carrie comes along. Carrie was published in 1974. Mm. Um, Mm. This, this was written towards the end of 1975. So it's, there's not much in between it. And then, uh, Carry the film comes out in 1976. Yeah, you get all those flurry of uh, rip-offs that come after it. The difference is with this and those carry and the carry clones is 
you don't get a snapshot of the home life. You don't get anything about is, is she victimised at home as you get in the, those other films. So it's difficult to identify with Noreen. Again, you, you, you can't say whether she's a good or bad person. Yeah, you get a couple of you get a couple of throwaway lines about her home life, don't you? Her father's dead or not there, yeah. and her her mother's ill a lot. That's what mm. you know. But it's it's broad brushstrokes on someone who is disadvantaged. Yeah, yeah, but it's very broad. There's, there's, and also, there's, there's no there's no there's nothing about a religious element to it that you get in Carrie with, with the, yeah. the overbearing yeah. religious mother. Um, there are similarities, though. Uh, there's, a repressed, there's a repressed sexuality thing going on here, isn't there? Where mm -hmm. she's attracted to the, the store manager and she's rebuffed because of that. Um, there's, you know, there's, that, there's those type of similarities. But whether Neil was influenced by the King's novel, that, that's debatable. I mean, I've, I've, read, I've read, I've had a look through Carrie and I've had a look through the script and there's certain broad ways that both characters are described as, you know, references to having, having unkept hair and being fat and spotty. Um, but but that be that could be just um, a coincidence, really, rather than, than Neil drawing any particular inspiration from the King book. Um, the, uh, the character description of Maureen is quite interesting. Um, Okay, so his character description of Noreen is um, quite short. She's like something from under a stone, like a woodlouse with a shell, clammy and white and soft from lack of sun. Like something from under a stone? Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, yeah. Pauline Quirk is, is pretty great in this. I mean, Pauline Quirk is mm. one of those actors who just is solidly in stuff from the 70s right up to pretty much the present day right she's you, you look at her imdb page and you know she's just solidly working and she's just on tv for since 1970 doing things um she's uh i i, I don't know is this one this is one of her first really important roles isn't it she did a role beforehand playing an autistic teenager in an in a uh, ITV play. Um, uh, All right. But, but this is, is very early on in her career. And um, what's interesting, what's always struck me about it is, is um, she became much more known for a comedy. But then yeah. she had a renaissance in the late 90s where she did The Sculptress. Mm. And... She, she plays again that outsider character in Sculptress. Could that could that be no Noreen thirty years later? Could it be the same character? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you 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 could quite easily describe Pauline Quirk as like an English Kathy Bates in a lot of ways. Definitely, definitely. Um, There's um, particular in how she bounces off. Is it um, what's his, what's um, uh, Patrick, not Patrick, Patrick Bateman. That's what I was going to call him. Um, <laughs> no, Jeffrey, uh, but Jeffrey Bateman. Sorry, Jeffrey Bateman, uh, Bateman yeah. yeah, plays Mr. Grimley. Um, there's a bit where the, think at the end, um, his boss 
is it Leversidge or something? He says, um, oh, she's in love with you. And his response is, that's sick. That's, that's <laughs> horrible. As if she, like, for her having those emotions is, is disgusting, which is a really, really nasty term. Well, yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll throw himself unsuccessfully at any um, young, young checkout girl. Yeah, Shirley Sherrison for EastEnders. Oh yes, right at the beginning of EastEnders, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. She, she ended. She, um, in yeah, she's not made any appearances recently. I think um, she, she had a lot of problems. She married a guy from EastEnders, a Scottish guy, didn't she? And it all ended quite badly. Um, but yes, Shirley Sheridan, Um and Wensley Piffy is Mr. Liversage, Liversedge. Um, quite quite a, a well-known very busy actor uh, character actor um, the special offer was 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 the um, the most complex of all the episodes of beasts in terms of special effects you mean in, in, in terms of production yeah, um, yeah. Um, Caroline I must thank Caroline champion because she's been helping with the book tracking people down and she managed to track down uh, George Lewinberger, who did wow. all the special effects for for Beasts and Special Offer in particular. He's never been interviewed before by anybody. Wow. Um, and uh, he was he was quite concerned at first who this strange man was. He was asking about <laughs> something he'd worked on 40 years ago. Um, but in, 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 in interviews, Neil always said that uh, ATV struggled with this episode because they didn't have a special effects department, which is completely incorrect. <laughs> they had a special effects department, department uh, there from the day they were founded back in the 1960s because George Lusenberg um, moved from working on films and was recruited to work for ATV specifically. Um, so in the book, he... I've got a big section about George because um, he worked on so many things over the years, um, had an incredible career. Um, but he 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 was um, he was quite interesting to talk to because uh, he he told me that uh, at the production meeting, him and Neil got together and were planning the special effects together between them. So uh, there was a lot of tape stoppages for. Uh, special offer because they had to mount all the special effects separately um, so was, I think it was actually shot over two days uh, instead of the, the single day because of that um, so yeah it's, it's, it's interesting how um, uh, Laureen uh, is easy to characterise to sort of characterise Billy as just even when you know it's the uh, uh, it's her it's her latent power like there's the the bit where she's they spill a bottle and it's it's made a joke about it. it's the it's the it's billy pissing or something like that. naughty billy and like that as well <laughs> it's, it's funny. even though you know uh, no one else seems to seriously believe that it's that, 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 that it, it's an animal but also there's like um what you think of initially as is uh from from bateman is um is just a piece of prejudice when he's asked there's something wrong with her it's just a feeling and it just that's an easy that's an easy way to make sort of a classist or a sexist or a misogynistic judgment on somebody but you wonder 
as you wonder when there's there's the character realizations like you know in Moraine where she is holding the baby and for the first time or the, the doll sorry and for the first time um, uh, he wonders whether there might be something in this and he's he's not quite not quite sure and there's a recurring theme of I think possibly there's there's some level of foreboding um, which you're invited I think to interpret as a simple misogyny or judgment, but whether there's there's something, there is something more there. There's something that they're 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 unsure about. I mean, um, Barty's party and Angie's, um, she's nervous from the start. Uh, she's yeah. There's something. There's there's something more. I wonder about whether there's yeah people um, whether whether it's done basically for dramatic tension or not. But nevertheless, the characters in there know something might might be wrong, which is keeps you on edge. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, to be honest. Um, no, it's just my, it's just a long, long yeah, uh, there is a possibility. Possibly, possibly. Um, it's, it's an interesting one because it's, it, it, it's structured differently in a way to, to the other episodes of Beasts. Where there's, there's, I get, I guess, I guess, I guess actually thinking about it, that the other episodes of Beasts all have, the male characters are all let down by their own hubris, their own self arrogance. In in special offer, that's is that the case? Is Jeffrey? Why well, he's he, he's told just be kind, isn't he? And he he isn't quite capable of doing that. But he mm. he if he was able to just treat her well, just with you know, he doesn't have to go out with her. But if he is able to to show her respect, if he is able well. As, as his boss says, just be kind, but he can't. Even though you wouldn't think it was that, it was that, it was that difficult. Um, mm. And yet, she's she is annoying, and she is. Uh, I'm not, and as I've said before, I think when she works out what the power does, she's not necessarily a, 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 a good person. But as a manager, like you're you're expected to be able to show patience, to show understanding, to show you know, respect to, the, to, 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 to people you might not otherwise like and his failure to do that is ultimately what well to say kills him I'm not sure he's actually dead at the end you know he's taken away by the by by, by the ambulance whether he's just unconscious or not anyway but you know he gets it's, it's that that buries him under a can under a, a, a load of, of tear baked beans yeah yeah so I guess I guess yeah I guess it is his own hubris and arrogance that yeah gets his problems as well is it true Linda LaPlante's in this? I read, um, I, I read somewhere that she's she's has an uncredited role. Yes, yes, she she is. She's um, she's <laughs> one of the um, one of the customers. Right. It? Um, it's a very very it's a coffin spit. It's a very yeah. brief role. Um, but yes, not that she's known as an actor that. anyway. But yeah, that is yeah, okay. Yeah. Well. yeah. A good, um, a good Doctor Who spot is um, Zan Churchman's in this, isn't she? The voice of Alpha Centauri. She's one of the ladies. She is. She is yeah. also uh, one of the ladies that's doing the shopping in in, in um, without Brightway, without well. Stuart Stuart Fell being her body this time. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> yes. By the way, surely um, she surely she holds the record for the um, biggest biggest distance between first and last appearances in Doctor Who. Playing the same character. Playing the same character. Sorry, yeah, playing the same character. Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cur yeah. Curse of Peladon to Empress of Mars. That must be some. Not this, to do with anything else. 40, 48 years, isn't some, it? Some, something, some, like that. something like that. Yeah, that's that's really impressive. Sorry, anyway, back to. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> have you? So a, a lot of people uh, have said that uh, special offer is influenced by an episode from uh, that occurred on the Isle of Man when, when Neil was a young boy. Okay. Uh, have you heard of Jeff or Geth? The, the talking, talking mongoose. mongoose. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, some of our um, listeners what, might not have, so what, please, okay. please enlighten us. Just to... Okay, so in 1931, a, 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 an isolated cottage owned by the Irving family in the Isle of Man were plagued by strange occurrences, so noises, things being moved, things being thrown, and eventually some vocalisations were heard, supposedly from behind the wood panelling in the house. Uh, and they eventually became voices, a voice uh, which told them that he was a mongoose called Geth or Jeff, uh, and he'd play tricks on them or he'd bring them presents. The voice in English and said, "I'm a, I'm a, I'm a ghost of a, mon yes. of a mongoose." Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just clarifying. Um, it, 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 it got loads of press coverage. It became um, a national sensation, and. Um, was 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 covered very extensively in the press. Now, some people have said that this this has influenced Neil with Brightway Billy, with the look of Brightway Billy, the, the actual character you see on the branding throughout the right. show. I I can't find any evidence of that. I I'm, I'm not too sure about it. Um, but however, it is a poltergeist, and this is. This could be about poltergeist activity as well, as in special offer, you know, the psychic kinetic ability. But I think it's something that Neil was was just interested in anyway, because you've got you know there's, there's references uh, to it in Quasimass in the Pit as well, um, when 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 the Martian influence is unleashed on a population, they go on the hunt for the people who are not influenced by uh, the capture. Mm. Um, well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced that that it's a direct influence. But I think Neil was definitely would have been aware of this because his dad was uh, the editor of the the main newspaper on the island. Right. So he probably would have been aware of it certainly, um, and it may have sparked his interest in some ways to do to do with poltergeist activity. Right. Yes. I think for a certain. Uh, certain generation of people who just sort of assume if you're too young for all of this as i am i'm 42 so i was a mere I, child well i wasn't born when beasts was broadcast uh, i was born two years two years later. i was i was too young for quatermass four um so when you i came to quatermass through doctor who and the people of my age gen generally did because what's there and in doctor who is a gateway drug for some people it's a gateway drug in uh, sci-fi i find a lot of sci-fi po-faced and boring so it was a gate, Doctor Who was a gateway drug into old telly, um, which was mm. infinitely interesting, more interesting than the stuff I found. And in the way that hauntology is now the most overused word uh, in, 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 in the lexicon. Um, just a bit. Just a bit. The way that um, you react to, 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 to watching stuff now that was made 40, 50 years, 60 years ago, the way uh, a, a, a 16 millimeter film sequence can have in that great and the, and the weird graininess can can uh, can have sort of Proustian uh, recall even if you weren't there but it harks back yeah. to some to some fuck off this is interesting um, but yeah, it, harks, sorry. it harks back to some to to, to, to to something to something old and that can see it's, that can seem sinister 
completely true. Even as a kid, even though I didn't know the difference between video and film, I could tell the change in the quality yeah, of film when they were weird. outside. Mm. There's, there's something weird. I, 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 it's writ large by the work, the work, the work Neil does. And it's yeah. one thing, I, as I've said before, I disagree with M.R. James when he says the ghost should never be too old. There's something literally awesome about the end of the stone tape where he says, it was rubbish. It was like seven thousand years ago. It was the information was coming out. I'm like, no, that's not. That's too. That's too far. What? What was there? What was there? We don't. We don't know. And there's something. There's something far-reaching. About. Well, I mean, um, Neil. Neil basically straddles the line between hauntings and cosmic horror. Basically, mm. he's. he's um, about H.P. Lovecraft. He didn't read any, did he? No, no, no but no, it doesn't matter. I mean, he came came to the same ideas himself. Yeah. Yeah and, yeah, and 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 wasn't a virulent racist. So, <laughs> you know, I, like that. But it, it, it's interesting. I, re I read an article by China Mieville, the um, the fantasy writer, where he basically goes, "You can't have cosmic horror and haunting in the same place. You can't have a weird haunting." Mm. And anyone who's looked at, with any kind of depth into the work of Nigel Neal knows that's bullshit. Mm. Yeah, because he's all is. about the weird hauntings. Mm. Yes, yet grounding, and this is, I think Beast does this um, probably even better than, than, than the, the Quatermass serials, uh, even the, the Cartier Quatermass serials, is just grounding that in sort of beautiful language and characters, yet yeah. we've got cosmic horror just, just happening there, so, and we'll talk about this next time, but those just little, he does the little steps in, in Baby, where um, you'll have almost the you know throwaway dialogue from the two old from the particular one of the old the old guys that was yeah that was made for that was ma it was made for suckling and suckling right oh here. Mark Dignam yeah. yes do and yeah. then, but then you just have like you know um, the most horrible bit and it's The Shining is the most famous example where spatial um, non nonsense uh, causes uh, causes a, 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 a disturbing reaction it's the bit where the figure in baby leaves but there's no door where the figure leaves it doesn't make sense um yeah. you just send the figure past the back but she but the figure can't we don't know what the figure is yet whatever that figure is that witch whatever um but it's not so much that there's a figure behind her that's an intruder in the house it's that it exits out of a place where it can't there isn't a door well, there isn't a door there now and that's that's i was Goosebumps now thinking about it. That's the whole thing that's been about it. It's just, it's so, and it's so, it's so effective. There's something beyond understanding. There's something ancient and awful uh, that, yeah. you, that you simply can, you can barely comprehend, let alone confront. We'd like to thank Caroline Champion for her help in the preparation of this episode. Birdcast was presented by Howard David Ingham and John Deere was engineered by Emma Cooper. Thank you for listening.